Okay, so Act 4, Scene 1 and Act 4, Scene 2, the function of these two scenes are they invite direct comparison of uh, Caesar and Antony as uh, military and political leaders. Um, So we're going to go through quite short scenes, um, but are actually really, really useful in terms of comparing um, the two different generals and thinking about which ones we're supposed to admire or which aspects of their characters we're supposed to admire or criticize. So we um, begin with Caesar's camp near Alexandria. Um, Interesting use of kind of uh, pronouns again in Caesar's language. He calls me boy. Um, I have many other ways. Um, He tries to beat me. So there is that kind of um, a sense that this is kind of personal again and that Caesar uh, sees Antony's attempts to try and get him into battle as, as kind of personal. Um, there is the description of um, Antony from Caesar as an old ruffian um, and that he wants Antony to know that he laughs at his challenge um, and ultimately that, you know, single combat is heroic somewhat, but actually is a foolish judgment when Caesar is winning, essentially the, the kind of you know, the, the greater war, um, Antony wants to win this kind of battle. Um, and Messenus offers advice to Caesar. When, uh, Caesar must think when one so great begins to rage, he's hunted even to falling. Um, and it's interesting use of that animalistic imagery that um, they've kind of pinned Antony into a corner and that um, he's, he's going to fight even though he knows that he's going to fail essentially um and it's the idea of don't answer his his kind of calls for single combat but make boot of his distraction to, in other words take advantage of his mad rage so again another another sign that Antony's not thinking straight apparently from Caesar's perspective um but there is honor in his appeal for single combat in terms of kind of um Roman military identity which which we have to kind of remember um, Caesar's response is uh, know that tomorrow the last of many battles we mean to fight um, and I would put a star at that because it's it's an interesting one that Caesar again has this confidence that he will um, this this will end it uh, he'll he'll win this and actually he's wrong he's not going to win it um, so it's 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 worthwhile kind of putting down again this idea of fate and destiny is, is Caesar making a, a sensible judgment here thinking that he's of course he's going to win he's got everything on his side but um actually Antony has experienced somewhat on his side that he he seems to disregard um and what his tactic is and this will lend the the comparison into the next two is um Caesar his response is within our files in other words within our army there are those that serve Mark Antony but late um and again that idea of loyalty versus disloyalty is coming up again and we know that that's how act three ended with Enobarbus's kind of conflict um, and he says that essentially it will be enough to fetch him in in other words put them kind of you know it'll taunt him um, it's a sense of kind of pride that his um, followers have been disloyal to him that it's going to pull Antony into the fight um, and he's like see it done so kind of like put them to the front you know it'll, it'll make Antony mad and reckless in his decisions um, and it seems quite cruel in terms of um Caesar's view as a as a leader in terms of kind of his subordinates. Now his last line, you know, per Antony, it's worthwhile thinking about what's his attitude. Is it controlled? Is it scornful? Is it angry? Is it sympathetic? Is he being 
and bitterly ironic at that point. It can be read in, in many different ways. Um, and then we enter Act 14 too, which automatically contrasts with um, Antony's response. So again, that kind of the way these two scenes have been put side by side will, will um, encourage us to make those two comparisons. And Enobarbus relays the, you know, the information of he's not going to fight with you. Like he's not going to um, take your, your taunt to single hand combat. Um, and it's the why won't he? And it's he thinks being 20 times of better fortune, he has 20 men to one. In other words, luck and numbers are on his side, um, which as an audience, we're probably likely to agree with at this point. Um, however, Caesar doesn't win this next battle so it suggests that there's still kind of fight within Antony and he does you know he's determined to fight to the death and this kind of Roman code of honour is is imperative in terms of his identity and he says uh, or I will live or be of my dying honour in the blood shall make it live again and that fighting will kind of restore his honour and it was a, an old belief that bathing in blood restored youth kind of comes up. Um, now with Antony he calls forth his household servants, they enter, um, and he does a kind of final feast and a, and a bit of a farewell to them. He says, you have served me well and kings have been your fellows. Um, and they're... This this kind of worries Cleopatra uh, and Dina Barbus, you know, as aside, they say, what means this? It is one of those odd tricks which sorrow shoots out of the mind. And they're kind of worried about Antony's decision and state of mind. You know, is he depressed? Does he think that he is going to die? Like, it's inevitable he's going to die, but he's going to go out dying, um, you know, go out fighting. Um, and actually, this kind of plays out a little bit like the Last Supper. Um, so that echoes of that, you know, the New Testament in which, um, Anthony is is kind of pinioned into this Christ-like image of knowing what he's about to face, you know, inevitable death. And this is a, a kind of farewell to the people who followed him right to the very end. Um, it plays out like that. It's a very different, you know, there's that magnanimity of character that compared to Caesar's um, lack of regard, in a sense, for for kind of his subordinates is, um, is striking when we compare the two men and how they're, um, spending their last evenings before this battle. And there's some really, really great um, language here uh, that, you know, Enobarbus says, you know, he's trying to make his followers weep, essentially. He's trying to create sorrow. You know, it's sad that Enobarbus seems to be having some type of emotional reaction to this. We have to remember he's in this scene, but he's already made the decision that he's going to abandon Antony. And again, Enobarbus is cast into this Judas-like role as well. So the comparisons between the a biblical illusion, which... Um, a Renaissance or a Jacobean audience would have been acutely familiar with is, is really striking at this point in terms of the imagery and the roles that they've been cast in. Um, and Antony, again, this idea that he feels that death is somewhat inevitable. He says, perchance tomorrow you'll serve another master. Um, Mine honest friends, I turn you not away, but like a master married to your good service, stay till death. There's kind of, you know, honour and respect at that point. Um, and it's the moral upright desire to stay loyal at this point. He's like, you know, tomorrow, but please stay with me tonight, this one final night. And Ian Barbish responds to it kind of with a rhetorical question again, you know, what mean you, sir, to give them this discomfort? Look, they weep and I and ask, I'm on your eye, transform us not to women. So in other words, you know, they're all crying. They're all really emotional at this point. Um, and it, it, again, it's interesting that, that this um, this idea of, you know, to be, to be female is considered to be emotional or to be weak in, in that parallel that he uses in his imagery. Um, Anthony's response 
is I speak to you for your comfort, essentially. Um, you know, he says, know my hearts, I hope well of tomorrow. So actually he is hoping for a victory. But the kind of farewell is evokes tension and an ease for us as an audience as it does his followers too even though he is you know he'll expect victorious life than death and honor that he is hoping to win but we as an audience and it suggests that even Anthony himself is aware that the the kind of cards aren't in his favor in many ways and we're apprehensive for the upcoming battle in the next few scenes so Act 4, Scene 3, really, really brief and short scene, um, but there are some really interesting dramatic devices and conventions that Shakespeare is applying um, here. Uh, so Act 4, Scene 3 takes place in Antony's camp, and Antony's palace guards are beginning their night watch, and they hear strange music. Um, the guards are optimistic that if their navy succeeds in the coming battle, then the army will to stand up quickly. But then that confidence is shaken. Um, so you know that tomorrow is the day. It will determine one way for you well. Um, have you heard anything? Nothing. What news? Be like tis but a, a rumour. So in other words, there are kind of rumours and things flying around the town. Um, and there's tension and kind of unease at that point. Um, they place themselves in every corner of the stage. And again, that kind of visual spectacle, this kind of military pomp that goes around with it, this idea of waiting for an imminent attack. Um, and here we, and if tomorrow, they have an absolute hope for Lamb and stamp up. So they are confident and optimistic and there is some positivity and hope. And again, maybe that's to, to make us question as an audience our own preconceived ideas that Anthony is kind of doomed to fail and to lose this battle. Um, and the music of the hot boys is under the stage, you know, a brave army and full of purpose. And that, you know, sense of gravitas and tension that the music um, evokes and hot boys, hot boys are essentially oboes. So in terms of instrumentation, you know, quite low, quite ominous. Um, and it's a theatrical device um, that suggests uh, essentially the proceedings of war at what point. Now, it's interesting that it comes from under the stage because they do talk about that, you know, it's music in the air. No, it's under the earth. And um, that one soldier says it sounds well, does it not? And another says no. And actually, there is kind of uneasiness from it um, that, you know, one of them thinks that music is a good omen. Another thinks that it's a bad omen, that it's Hercules abandoning Antony. Um, we have to think of the kind of Renaissance stage as well. So if we're thinking of the globe, you can do a bit of research on this theatre if you're not familiar with it. Um, the idea of under the stage is a signifier of hell and of sin. That's where characters, you know, come from when they've died. And above is called the gods. And if you look in um, the gold theatre, the, the ceiling of the of the outdoor theatre is painted like the skies of heavens. So the gods are up and then hell is downwards. So the fact that the music's coming from under the stage, it suggests that um, th there's tension and unease and, and fear um, kind of underpinning all of this. It is also a reminder of kind of fate and supernatural, that there seems to be something bigger at work in this play, kind of beyond human understanding in, in so many different thoughts. Um, uh, and the fact that it's one soldier says that it's the god Hercules who Antony loved leaves him. It's this idea that, you know, his military image is perhaps abandoning him. Um, what's really interesting is that it's, we're, we're 
we're offered contrasting opinions of that it's good news, no, it's bad news. And it helps to just, again, create anticipation and tension for us as an audience. Um, and it kind of does somewhat forebode what, what feels like inevitable doom. And we have to remember of we've, we've got that dramatic irony of we were privy to the conversation between Antony and the soothsayer that Antony's fortune will, will not light when Caesar's nearby. Um, and it seems to be inevitable that he will feel this battle. However, we will find out soon that he doesn't. Um, so, yeah, really, really brief thing, but there's lots of interesting things that are happening theatrically in it. Okay, so Act 4, Scene 4, we are in Cleopatra's palace. And in this scene, Eros and Cleopatra are helping to arm Antony for battle. Um, so it's a really interesting scene in which we can consider... Um, costume um in in many ways and kind of the theatrical device of you know dressing Antony for battle and what that um helps signify or signal but his his character or his identity at this point in the play um so he calls for you know eros mine armor eros um and cleopatra wants him to sleep and there's a suggestion that you know he he hasn't and again a lack of sleep is a common trope particularly within Shakespeare's plays um of kind of you know that he's lacking rational thought that it's considered you make mad or emotional decisions when you are not thinking straight through lack of sleep and it's common within a lot of Shakespeare's tragic heroes for example Macbeth you know he says in his his um in that famous play you know Macbeth doth murder sleep um it doesn't exist anymore for him um so there's something to to say there but you know he calls her my chuck so it's it's um, a dearest so there is kind of terms of affection here at this point and Eros is dressing him um, in his armory, but Cleopatra wants to help. You know, she she tries to help arm him, but doesn't really know what bit of armor goes where. Um, and Antony um, uses this beautiful metaphor of thou art the armorer of my heart. Um, and what's really interesting is we see Antony using, you know, lots of terms of affection and um, being quite intimate with Cleopatra in terms of his language here. And whilst he's dressed as a soldier. So again, that kind of duality of Antony is depicted here of that lover and soldier. And again, are they are they compatible images? Um, and I think what's, what's interesting is in this scene, it's not a private scene again. This is a scene in which others are attending. So this is a public display. So we have to remember that it seems to be that everything Antony and Cleopatra do is always for some type of outward appearance um, and there will be an article that I'm going to get you to read soon on Shakespeare and celebrity and this concept of um, celebrity status and doing things for external recognition or for the public world rather than for the private and it's a really interesting moment when you start to kind of unpack the relationship and what we see of this kind of power couple that is Antony and Cleopatra. Um, but that, you know, the armour of my heart is this brave face of lovers to the world through that metaphor. And even, you know, that false, false, this, this, it means that she's put it on wrong. Yeah, so it's it's the other way. Um, uh, so it's, it's she's somewhat, you know, she's a, she's a terrible assistant for war, essentially. Um, but there's something quite, lovely about this scene um it really is it's one of my it's one of my favorite little moments in it um 
And, you know, there's even this kind of, you know, is this not buckled well? So there is this kind of teasing at this point. And he mocks Eros uh, later. He says, thou fondest Eros and my queen's esquire more tight at this than thou. Um, you know, that she, she's a better soldier or a better, better kind of assistant than he is. It's all very tongue in cheek and very kind of mocking. Um, but it's lovely. It's lovely. It's just a really nice scene. It's kind of a, a it's an affectionate scene. And um, we kind of need that moment of slight lightness in comparison to the uh, scenes that we've had prior and what are about to come up. Um, he does say to her, oh, love, that thou could see my wars today and use the royal occupation, thou would see a worksman in it. So, you know, that Antony is essentially an expert warrior and if only she could see him at, at his best, essentially. And again, it just shows how much of that identity is important to Antony and he's seeking kind of validation in a, in a sense from other people about it. Um, and he says, you know, good morrow, we welcome thee. Thou looks at him, warlike charge to business that we love, we rise by time and go to with delight. So in other words, I'm ready to fight, I'm ready to go. Um, and again, we have that shout and trumpets flourish around kind of line 22 and that gravitas and it evokes tension and urgency, you know, that there's there's men getting ready for battle, that this is fighting, it's, it's about to come back. Um, and we start to see Antony, who seems much more in control um, and has a, a kind of greater dignity and a bit of fire in his belly. And in many ways, is it the voice of, you know, the old Antony coming back, this kind of he's in command. He's got decisiveness in his speech. It's much more businesslike. It's enthusiastic. It's full of confidence and bravado. So this seems to be the moment in which Antony's starting to kind of, it feels like he's happily reconciling these two identities at this point in the play. Um, and it's something which is, is, admirable and and exciting to kind of see and to watch um you know his if we look at his language from 25 it's you know tis well blown lads this morning like the spirit of a youth that means to be of note begins betimes um and he kisses her and he says he kisses her with a soldier's kiss again and that kind of um there is a an assimilation, I suppose, of that soldier and lover imagery in the stage direction that he kisses her, but it's a soldier's kiss in many ways. And he describes himself with a simile of that he is going to leave her now like a man of steel, so that, you know, he's a warrior, he's a soldier. We've got the old Antony back. Um, so it's 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 rather interesting in terms of how he's depicted. This is a military farewell from Antony. Um, and Cleopatra... Um, seems much more reserved in this scene compared to prior but she remarks and praises his soldiership and his honor and his duty when she says he goes forth gallantly yet there is kind of a greatness and spirit at this point and there's strength in his resolve to fight albeit it might be to the death but it's something which she admires in Antony's character however it ends a little bit with some element of tension she kind of almost imagines that he and Caesar might determine this great war in single fight then Antony and she's got that hyphen but now well on she kind of interrupts herself um and is there a sense of a, a worry or that she doesn't want to think about it too much um potentially but there is that interruption which creates an element of unease that is this the last time the two are going to be united um is Antony going to fall at this point Okay, so we enter scene five, Antony's camp and the impending preparation for war. So Cleopatra is um, waiting in her room, very different um, compared to her determined to go to fight uh, in the in the 
build-up of the battle to Actium seems to be that she's learned her lesson and a clear reminder for us as an audience that war and battle is is a man's world in this play and that um women have no place in it is kind of what's stressed um but Antony um essentially admits his fault in not taking the soldier's advice to fight on land um in the build-up to Actium um and in this short scene he learns of Enobarbus's desertion and he shows his dignity as a leader because instead of seeking revenge, he orders his friend's treasure to be sent after him. So the trumpets sound, uh, the soldiers met him. You know, there's this kind of uh, impression of the gods make this a happy day to Antony. So there is hope and um, hope on their side, essentially, for, for a, a winning winning this upcoming battle between him and Caesar. Um, and Antony says, you know, would thou and those scars had once prevailed to make me fight at land? And he admits his flaw, not listening to previous advice. And in many ways, it could be, is this the moment in the play in which there's a partial aneurysis where Antony becomes wholly aware of his previous mistakes um, and trying to seize the opportunity to make it right. Um, is this that moment in terms of the structure of the um, tragedy? Um, as the scene kind of moves on, we find out that Enobarbus has left. Um, you know, he is with Caesar. And Antony, it seems to be asked that question, you know, is he gone? Like, it's it's this kind of shock or surprise that Enobarbus has abandoned him um, and there is quick exchange dialogue but then that slow pace on is he gone most certain go Eros sent his treasure after him do it um, so this kind of magnanimity that Antony has in that he forgives and understands Enobarbus and actually he blames himself um, he says my fortunes have corrupted honest men his immediate reaction is to blame himself for for Enobarbus's desertion. Um, whether we as an audience agree with that is is Antony to blame or is Enobarbus partly to blame or is it not as easy to define as black or white? Um, but in many ways, his his reaction to Enobarbus's desertion of blaming himself and sending the you know the gold and the chests to Enobarbus after him, it heightens the sympathy that we have for Antony and it actually heightens the respect that we have for him as a leader and as a friend. Um, that you know he asks for um gentle adieus and greetings to Enobarbus as well, say that I wish he never find more cause to change a master. You know, he hopes for the best. He hopes that he finds a master that Enobarbus feels that he can stay with Antony blames himself so it's a really really key although it's a brief scene it's a really important scene for us to think about um Antony as a as a leader in a sense and and his him as a tragic hero as well um Act four, scene six. So again, act four, it's a sequence of lots of really short scenes when we jump back and forth over and over again between Antony's camp and then Caesar's camp. Um, and again, a real contrast between Antony and Caesar is made in this next scene. He's a very different military leader to Antony. He um, comes up with the, uh, the message to Agrippa to go charge Agrippa, plant those that have revolted in the van that Antony may seem to spend his fury upon himself. It seems callous. He's like, in other words, the men who've um, essentially left Antony, he's like, put them um, at the at the front ranks of the coming battle. So then Antony, when Antony's attacking the front line, it seems to be that he's attacking himself. Um, it's a very different military and leadership approach compared to Antony, and it's one which might make us feel critical of Caesar. It's 
sensible in terms of that it will provoke a response to Antony and it seems to be psychologically manipulative and destructive, but it's not moral, it's not honourable in many different ways. Um, uh, before we kind of shift on to the, the next little bit, um, if we just skip back, Caesar you know, talks about our will as Antony be took alive. So in other words, we don't want to kill him, take him alive. We'd be again thinking, why? What's his intention? Well, obviously, it's much... It suits his his kind of agenda to have an Antony who's alive, who he can potentially humiliate um, publicly for his own gain, um, rather than Antony dying honourably on the battlefield and becoming almost martyrised um, through that way. He does kind of mention that the time of universal peace is near. So, you know, we're in the throngs of chaos. Peace is, is, is going to happen. What is, we know from AO, for AO3 that he will become Caesar Augustus, you know, that universal landlord. And actually the world did, and the Roman Empire in particular, did experience kind of a, a long a long period of time of, of peace under his rule. So there is an accuracy in terms of his judgment there. Um, but Enobarbus, again, this kind of recognition of his error, that he's made the wrong decision um, that Caesar is not an honourable leader like Antony was um, and what's interesting structurally is he acknowledges this prior to the messenger delivering the wealth from Antony and Antony's message and that's really important um, we could see you know Barbus is a character who's only out for really true gain if he delivered this speech from kind of line 12 onwards after the soldier has entered, but it's not, it comes before. So, you know, for uh, uh, Alexis did revolt and went to jury on affairs of Antony. Uh, for this pain, Caesar hath hanged him. Uh, Canidius and the rest that fell away have entertainment, but no honourable trust I have done ill. So in other words, he knows he's done, he's made the wrong decision by deferring to, um, to Caesar at this point. Uh, the soldier comes in he says, Antony hath thee sent all thy treasure with his bounty overplus. Um, so here, here's everything. Here's Antony's good goodwill message from you. Um, and the, his last line, that metaphor of your emperor continues still a Jove. So Jove, obviously the king of the gods. So that kind of metaphor is suggesting that even Antony, who has every right to lash out, to feel angry, to feel embittered, to want to punish what seems to be that, you know, fate and fortunes are against Antony. He seems to be at his lowest point at this point in the play. He's still a king of the gods. He's still a better person. He doesn't judge Enobarbus, but instead wishes him well and sends him his treasures. Um, and it's a real um, moment in which we see that Antony's generosity just leaves Enobarbus utterly guilt-stricken. He refers to himself as the villain of the earth at this point. And in his soliloquy, we see the despair and the grief and the guilt and the utter distress that Enobarbus experiences at his betrayal in many ways. Um, and again, this kind of echoes of, of the um, what happened in the, in the story of, of Christ. It kind of comes up again here that it seems to be that for the only option for Enobarbus is to choose death because he can't live with what he's done. Um, and there is this image of, you know, that he says, this blows my heart. And I suppose what's really interesting with this is in, in Jacobean society, you know, to be full of thoughts like distress, grief and despair, that it, those overwhelming thoughts were, they believed were actually capable of bursting the heart exploding so that's what he means this blows my heart um and he 
will die essentially of a, of a broken heart that it causes almost like a, a, a cardiac arrest of these extreme thoughts. Um, and what's interesting is Ina Barbus feels that the only honourable death he deserves is that he needs to seek some ditch wherein to die. This, the foulest best fits my latter part of life. Um, that he doesn't deserve a good death. The only honourable death he deserves is one in private, in a ditch, um, away from from kind of eyes of judgment in so many different ways. And it is a it's a tragic ending for a character like Ina Barbus, who has been, you know, quite a, a comical character, a really admirable character in many ways, and one that we have praised for his um, intelligence and his kind of prowess to be able to see things as they are, um, but one which has made a fatal mistake and a fatal error and has paid you know, huge consequences um, for, for his actions.